Paul is going to conclude the Rewired series this morning, and we have our passage from the book of Romans. We're reading Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. If you're using one of the Bibles on the chair, you'll find that on page 947. Again, that's Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, and perfect. Will you pray with me? Father, we want to tell you right now that we are so grateful for your mercies. We thank you that you are a God of mercy, that you pour it out on uh, your children, and we thank you for that. We thank you that we see the most beautiful display of your mercy at the cross where you um, chose to reconcile yourself, us, back to you. And, Father, we thank you for the mercies that are new every day. And, Father, we, we tell you this morning that we long to be people that will surrender more and more of ourselves to you in worship. And we ask, Father, that as we do that, would you use that surrender as a catalyst to do the changes in us and the renewal of our minds and the refreshment of our souls that we need daily. And would you please teach us this morning from your word how you are the um, transformer of our hearts. And we ask all of these things in your name for your glory. Amen. In the beginning, God created all things and set them in motion. He carefully threaded every fiber of our beings and designed us to be perfect. His creation was full of joy and glorified God in every way. Then sin began to unwind the world. Now we experience seasons of both joy and pain. Life is often disappointing, and so are we. Is it even possible to change? Good morning. Is it even possible to change? That's our topic for this morning. I think that most people would answer that question, yes, of course it's possible to change. But believing that it's possible to change and actually making progress towards change are two different things, aren't they? Uh, In spite of our best efforts, when we try to make a habit out of getting out of bed earlier or out of not being so defensive when somebody disrespects us at work or of being more patient when the woman at the checkout counter ahead of us is digging around in her purse trying to find her coupon, we realize the change can be really hard. It's an uphill battle to stop spending on this or 
consuming that or judging them or struggling with this or that or whatever it is that our temptations or weaknesses happen to be. And if you've ever tried to overcome guilt from your past or a present struggle with selfishness or insecurity or anxiety, you know full well that that changing these things and changing yourself can be extremely difficult. And in fact, even just the idea of hoping for meaningful change in your life can sometimes feel like a waste of energy. Why burn the neurons? And this is why some people embrace thinking like this. This is a quote that is a teaching from an Indian philosopher. He says, accept yourself as you are. From the very beginning, you've been told how you should be, but nobody has ever told you that you are good as you are. When it comes to your personal liabilities, he says, if you can't beat them, embrace them. If you can't change them, just learn to accept them. And he encourages people just to give up on change and decide to live by bumper sticker slogans like these ones. I am perfect in my imperfections. Or to be beautiful is just to be yourself. These will be on sale at the information booth after the service. But I am convinced that most people do not want to live like this. Not if they don't have to. Most of the people that I know have an earnest desire to change and to grow and to improve, to become stronger and and more mature. They want to put their bad habits behind them. They want their lives to be more characterized by love and integrity and and compassion and joy. In the United States alone, the self-improvement market is worth more than $10 billion a year. Everybody wants to change. But the problem is that most people don't know how to change. They either are not sure how to effectively initiate it, or they lack the perseverance to persist In it, and so they wonder, is it even possible to change? Well, God says that it is. But how? Well, the passage that we're going to look at this morning is a part of his answer. It's it's not his exhaustive answer. God works in many other ways than we're going to look at this morning. But this passage does offer us some tremendous help in showing us part of the process that God uses to help us grow. And what we find in this passage is that it's God's desire not just to see us change, but to see us, as the word in verse 2 says, transformed. A transformation is a fuller kind of change. The word transformed that is used here in verse 2 in the original language here is where we get the English word metamorphosis. And so just like a little green, new, inexperienced caterpillar metamorphosizes into a mature, beautiful, strong adult butterfly, God desires to transform us into mature grown-ups as well. And when we come to Jesus, God welcomes us wherever we're at, but he is committed to not letting us just stay there. God's spirit goes to work in our lives, progressively transforming us into greater maturity and Christ-likeness. So let me ask you this question. Do you want to change this morning?
Do you want to change? And if your answer to that question is yes, then perfect. Because God wants to change you too. And he invites you to participate in his work in doing so. And in fact, you must participate. And this passage shows you about his process and how you can join him in this work. So let's take a look at it this morning. This is a wonderful passage. Uh, First of all, what we're going to find is that God changes us by granting to us, first of all, and foundationally to everything, his mercy. Look at verse 1. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. The mercies of God is is where he starts. So we've got to start there, too, and, and ask ourselves, what is mercy? Well, the basic idea of mercy is someone deciding Uh, to take a person who deserves to be punished, but to forgive them instead. Uh, it's, It's setting a person free when it would be perfectly justifiable to inflict a penalty upon them. And in the Bible specifically, God's mercy is best expressed in his willingness not to punish a sinner as that sinner's sin deserves. The mercy of God through the gospel is what the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans are really all about. Paul begins the book of Romans with a discussion of how absolutely and completely righteous God is, and yet how bent towards unrighteousness we are. And Paul makes it clear that God would be perfectly justified in pouring out his holy wrath upon all of us sinners who deserve it. However, the book goes on to tell us how, instead of wrath, sinners can enjoy perfect peace with God. And how they can do it, not based on any action or goodness of their own, but peace that is granted freely as a gift by faith in the saving work of Christ. And and this gift is his mercy. How God can, rather than punish us, forgive us and, and free us. And we find that God sent Jesus to endure on the cross the wrath of God that you and I deserve to face ourselves for our sin so that by the mercy of God we can be forgiven. You know, if you were to imagine that I was a great and good and mighty and strong and powerful king, but you've wronged me in some terrible way so that my wrath has been aroused against you, well, then there is nothing in our relationship that's going to feel good or safe. But if there were some way for your crime to be atoned for so that all of my wrath against you could be sent elsewhere and absorbed perhaps by someone else so that it could be fully removed from you and you could be completely forgiven, then think about what a wonderful, powerful friend you would have in me. And when a person accepts the mercy of God and allows Jesus to be their sin bearer, suddenly their relationship with God is the safest relationship that they have in all of life. And it opens up the doorway to tremendous aid and support and love and confidence from God. So that now the the full extent of his divine resources are able to be applied into their lives. I hope you realize just how awesome the mercy of God is. 
And if you have received that mercy this morning freely through Christ, do you realize how blessed you are? Do you realize what you have, how loved you are, how cared for you are, how secure you are? Well, God changes us first by bestowing his mercy upon our lives. That's the background for everything that happens next. In fact, the first 11 chapters are the background for everything that he says next. Verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God to do what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Well, God next works change in us as we respond to his mercies by laying down our lives for him. We are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And and this concept is in part an allusion to the Old Testament where an animal was sacrificed as an offering to God. And to surrender an animal was very costly. They were quite expensive and valuable. And in every case, the animal died. If you sacrificed an animal to God, you didn't give it back. You gave it up completely. But now Paul says that we, in light of the mercies of God, are to surrender not animals, but our very selves. He says we are to present our bodies, which is all that we are as a person to God, not as a one-time sacrifice, but as a continual living and breathing daily, lifelong, hourly offering to him. And and Paul makes a declaration here that really is absolutely stunning. He says, this is how you worship God, in fact. This is your spiritual worship. He says, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I think that today most people think of worshiping in terms of a church service. Uh, they might say, I worship God on Sunday mornings at 9.30. There's, there's some people in the church who would say that. There's other people in, the, in this room who would say, well, I worship God at 11.15, right? But what this tells us is that worship is meant to be so much more. It, it says worship that is holy and acceptable to God isn't just setting aside an hour on a Sunday morning, as important as that is. This says that worship that's holy and acceptable to God is surrendering your entire life to God. All of your life is meant to be worship, every part. And when you wake up in the morning, you're meant to sit up in bed and rub the sleep from your eyes and to remind yourself of the mercies of God and to respond to God with an attitude that says, God, in light of this mercy... I am yours today. How can I serve you? What do you want to bring my way? Who do you want to bring my way? How would you like me to conduct myself? What is it that you would want to teach me? Would you help me to lay down my life as an offering for you today? Would you empower my life to be holy and acceptable to you Help me to worship you today, God, not just with part of me, but with all of me. 
Sometimes people think that it's really only pastors that are called to live spiritual lives like this during the week and that everyone else kind of lives in the real world where it's just not practical to live this way. But, but this tells us that even though pastors are expected to be faithful and mature followers of Christ, their lives are not meant to be any more worshipful than any other Christian's. Your week is meant to be filled with as much worship as mine. And you and I may have different responsibilities. It's, a, a, it's a probable that I'm going to spend a good part of my week here at the church. Well, you're going to spend a good part of your week studying in school or working at GM or taking care of children or, or whatever it is that you do. It doesn't matter because all of my life and all of your life is meant to be an act of worship no matter the particular of our jobs. Whatever you do, Paul wrote, Do it all for the glory of God. Do it all so that your life would represent and reflect his goodness back to him and and out into the world. And part of God's process in changing us is in helping us to learn to surrender our lives to him. Not just when we're in this building, but out there. So that worship isn't just a piece of us. It's all of us. It's not just a part of our scheduled time at 9.15 or 11.30, or 11.15, 9.30, But it's more and more becoming the whole of us. And if God is going to transform you in any significant way, he's got to have all of you. And so often there are parts of ourselves that we want to surrender to God. There's parts of ourselves that we want God to change, but there's other areas in our lives that we keep off limit to him. But God says here, no, I'm I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. I don't just want to work on a part. I want to transform the whole. So present your bodies to me fully and completely as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual worship which is holy and acceptable to him. Verse 1 shows us that God changes us upon his foundational gift of mercy through the gospel and as we surrender ourselves to him in living sacrificial lives of worship. Okay, that's verse 1. Now what verse 2 does is it helps us to understand what that means and, and what that will entail, what that looks like practically. Okay, so let's look at verse two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So surrendering yourself to God, right? Laying your life down as an offering to God will in in part mean not conforming yourself to the world. Surrendering your life to God will in part look like determining not to conform yourself to the world. And the meaning of this word here, world, isn't talking about like the planet Earth. Okay, Earth is a planet. What it's talking about is like the spirit of the world. You might say it's the spirit of the age or the spirit of the times that we live in. The the way of reasoning and living that sets itself against and apart from God. But here, Paul says, Christians are to live 
their lives in such a way that they do not comply to the spirit of the world. That in fact, instead of conforming to it, we fight against it. We we desire that we, our lives, would be governed by a different set of values. And, And what we find is that God will work change in our lives as we learn to say no to some things that will be very difficult for us to say no to because our natural tendency will always be to conform to the spirit of the age. It's hard not to for all kinds of reasons. But worship that is holy and acceptable to God is not just some pie in the sky, emotionally charged, warm and fuzzy spiritual experience. A lot of times this tells us worship is just gutting it out and saying no to the spirit of the world and sticking to your guns. And in this sense, worship can be very gritty and very physical, and very realistic. It will often feel like you're fighting a war with yourself and against your own appetites in life. Because living a non-conforming life to the world will mean there are things that a lot of other people are really enjoying and that you would really like to enjoy too, but that you will choose for the sake of God to miss out on in order to honor him. You're going to find that living in this world and and trying to live for God will create this clash of two different value systems. And if you decide not to conform, there's going to be many times in life that you're going to feel like you don't belong. You're going to feel like an outsider. You're going to feel bad, and it's going to hurt. People may label you as hateful or narrow-minded, even though you have no desire to harm, harm anyone. When you decide to live in nonconformance to the world, the world has a way of really making you suffer for it. But those who surrender their lives to God are willing to endure this suffering, not because they enjoy it, but because they see themselves as a living sacrifice. They view their entire lives as an offering to God laid down before him so that God can do in my life anything that he pleases. Whether I'm happy or sad, whether I live or whether I die, whether I'm healthy or whether I'm sick, whether I miss out on something or whether I'm a part of that something, God can do whatever he pleases because I belong to him now. And that person says, I'm just thankful to serve him, and I'm just delighting in his mercy. And do you see how that mindset produces the kind of person that God can't help but change, right? Living your life that way, the work that God could do inside of you is incredible. You see, worship isn't just singing Christian songs. Worship is war, Worship is a a battle over who you will surrender your life to. Will you surrender it to God or will you surrender it to the world? There's no middle ground. And, And depending on which side wins in your life, there's two outcomes. You'll either find yourself becoming conformed to the spirit of this age or you will find yourself being transformed by the spirit of God. Those are two outcomes. But this 
brings us, I think, to a very key question, and that is, how exactly is it that God works to transform us and to keep us from being conformed? Well, in verse 2, we find the answer. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Okay, so Paul tells us here that God's transformational work in our lives begins where? In the mind, right? Now, I cannot overestimate how important this point is. In your struggle to change, in your struggle to start doing certain things and stop doing other things, in your struggle to grow and to mature, the decisive field of battle will be your mind. Um, I think that many Christians today live very spiritually frustrated lives because they've missed this point. They believe that change begins in the heart. And that's because we grew, we grew up in a culture where hearts are so important, right? We're, we're told at a young age, follow your heart, listen to your heart. What does your heart tell you? Change begins in the heart, okay? So, so in order for a person's life to be different, they've got to listen to some sort of emotion that's within their heart, some sort of good or pleasant or helpful feeling, and they must feel about this change that they're going to make ready for that change. And their heart has to feel like they've got the power to make that change, that it's realistic for them to do so. And it's these emotions of the heart that they believe will ultimately fuel the difference in their life that that they're hoping will happen in some way. But according to this passage, it doesn't work like that. According to this passage, change isn't initiated in the heart. It's initiated in the mind. And I think one of the reasons for that is that the heart tends to be very fickle. You ever notice that about your heart? Uh, If you desire to get up 30 minutes earlier in the morning, let's let's say that's a goal that you set because you've realized that you really want to pray in the morning, but you you can't find time for it. So, So you decide you need to get up 30 minutes earlier. The last thing that you want to do is to put your heart in charge of getting out of bed in the morning, okay? When your alarm goes off at 5.30, trust me, your heart is going to tell you to keep your head on the pillow and go back to sleep. But... If you task your mind with this job, if if you put it in charge, your mind can remember why getting up is so important and valuable and and worth it. It's able to override your feelings in the moment and, and exhort you to be firm and determined and to keep the big picture in front of you. Your mind has a strength that your heart lacks. And in moments of temptation, this is true as well. Your heart is so much more likely to cave in in the moment. But your mind better understands consequences. It's got a better hold on morality. It it can remember what guilt feels like and what victory feels like. Let your mind lead your heart, not the other way around. For your mind will tend to be much more dependable. The key to transformation is the mind. And it's really interesting, just on a side note, to to share with you that the mind plays a critical role as well in the concept of repentance. 
Repentance in, in the Bible is, is a change in thinking that leads to a change in behavior. And, and what's important about that is, again, the, the idea of, of repenting, the idea of change is a change that doesn't first begin with the heart, but then it begins with the mind. But, excuse me. I just totally lost myself there. In the Bible, the word repentance starts not with the heart, but with the mind. Did I get that right? I'm sorry. <laughs> so I want to think about lasting change for a second. Most people think that, they're la- that to make lasting change, that they start with the action, right? That's when we make New Year's resolution. It's almost always an action that we make. But what the Bible teaches is that if we start with the mind, then the mind is able to inform the heart, and the heart in turn leads us into new behaviors. But when we start the other way, we sabotage the whole process. So I want to encourage you Christians this morning, put your mind in charge of your life, not your heart. And that isn't to downplay the heart. The heart is incredibly important and valuable. But all that I'm saying is I think the Bible teaches us that the heart needs to be led by the mind. It's not the heart that needs to lead the mind. And in fact, what we find here is that in truth, it's not just the heart that needs to be led. It's the mind that needs to be led as well. Your mind and my mind is such an incredibly powerful tool. I mean, our minds are just incredible, and they're one of our greatest allies in the battle to change and grow. However, the passage here makes it clear that just like your heart needs something that it doesn't naturally have, your mind does too. And Paul says your mind needs to be renewed transformed by the renewal of your mind. So what does this mean? How are our minds renewed? Well, the the basic idea is that your mind needs to be affected by God. Your mind needs to be impacted by God. You see, our minds are not just supercomputers or data centers that hold simply facts and information, even though amazingly they can do those things. But instead, our minds have certain personality. Our minds have certain patterns of thinking. They have attitude and very strong stances towards things. There are ways in which our minds are bent. Our minds don't tend to be as fickle as our hearts, but our minds can be awfully stubborn. And our minds are not naturally grateful for the mercies of God or willing to sacrifice or interested in worship. So this says that that what our minds need is they need to be renewed, which leads us to the question, well, how are our minds renewed? Well, your mind is renewed primarily through the regular intake of the word of God. It's this book, this book right here. This is the thing the Bible teaches that your mind feeds on. This is the thing that is meant to to lead your mind and, and guide your mind through life. Your mind needs to hear 
and to contemplate and to explore and to enjoy and to meditate upon the word of God. Through the Bible, God speaks his mind to us. Everything that that he wants us to know and trust is, is right here. These are the things that are in his mind for us. And it's meant to be not only a feast for our minds, but a guide for our minds. The scriptures are meant to lead our minds. And when it comes to to transformation, God works inside of us primarily first by changing our thinking. That's the first thing that God needs to do is, is he needs to change our mindset. And he does this primarily through the power of his word. And as we immerse ourselves in it, and allow it to guide our lives as we allow it to renew our minds each way, what what that enables is our minds to then take charge of our fickle hearts so that our feelings and our attitudes and our actions and behaviors begin to change. It starts here, it trickles down to our minds, which trickles into our hearts, which then trickles into the outworking of our lives. And that's so much a part of how God desires to change us. Now, in the end of this passage, what we see is we see what this process produces. We see the outcome. This is how you can tell if God is changing you. Let's read verse 2 again. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So as God renews my mind through careful meditation on his word, this says I'm able to ascertain what his will is. That is, I'm, I'm able to test and to discern what it is that God wants to have happen in this world, what he's doing, what he's doing in me, what he's done for me. I'm becoming clearer and clearer on who God is, his character, his integrity, his righteousness, his holiness, his love. I'm becoming clearer and clearer on who I am, my strengths, my weaknesses, my my besetting sins, my giftedness, all of those things. I'm becoming clearer on what it is that God has said and what it is that he's done and how it is that I ought to live, it says, according to his will. I'm able to, to test that. I'm able to discern that. But that's not all that it says. It says not only am I able to test and discern God's will, but now what I realize is how good and acceptable and perfect his will actually is. Thanks to the renewing of my mind, not only do I understand what God's will is, but I actually desire that God's will and not my will might be accomplished in my life. And I think that that last part is absolutely evidence that God is changing you because it's not our natural bent in life. Because now not only do I know what God wants, but I want what God wants too. I desire for my life to be a living sacrifice to him. I desire to make his will my own. And I believe that only a person that God is truly transforming can say that and believe that with the attitude in their heart. Is it possible to change? 
Is it possible for you to change? Can that actually happen in your life, even with those things that seem impossible? Well, God's answer is a resounding yes. God wants to change you. God wants you to participate in that change. And in fact, your participation is critical as he works in your life to change you. And I believe this passage tells us that God works change in our lives as we receive his mercy, first of all, through the gift of the gospel, as we present ourselves in light of this mercy as living sacrifices, as an offering to God, as we resolve not to conform to the spirit of the age, but seek to be transformed by the spirit of God, and as we empower our minds to be the primary drivers in our lives, making sure that they are being continually renewed by the word of God. And as we seek not only to discern the will of God, but to treasure the will of God and to make his will our will too. Let's pray that this would be true. Let's ask God to help us to do this. Let's thank him that he's committed to this process in us. Father, we do praise you for these things and we thank you for these things. I'm sure that there are in the heart and mind of every person in this room are ways that they desire to change. Areas of their lives that they would like to see transformed by you. And areas of of their life that they feel stuck in. And you know the particulars for each of us. You, You know exactly those areas in our lives where we need to change, to metamorphosis, to to grow up. Oh, Father, would you give us such a clear picture of your mercy to us in Jesus, the one who sacrificed his life for us so that it is actually our desire, our our joy, our privilege to sacrifice our lives as living offerings to you. We pray that you would help us to do that. We struggle in that. We so easily make decisions in the moment and then we don't live them out but we thank you that you have given us your word to lead us and to guide us and to show us what that looks like. We thank you that your word is not just ordinary, but that your word has power and that somehow your spirit is able to take the words that are written in this book and to apply them into our hearts and minds and lives and in ways that are powerful and in ways that are are even miraculous. We pray, Father, that you would give us a love for your word. We pray that you would help us to see it not as a drag, not as a responsibility that we just have to achieve, but as a joy, as something that we thirst for and are hungry for. Let us see your word as our food. And I pray just practically for people in this room who desire to read your word more. I pray that you would help them not to find, but to make the opportunity for that. Father, that you would would use it to renew them and to teach them and to train them and that that process of your word transforming us more into your image as we lay our lives down 
in dependence upon you and in following what you teach, we just ask that that would produce maturity in us. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you treat us as your children and like a good father, you promise to grow us up. We know that we are so stubborn at times in that process. Father, we surrender ourselves to you. We give you our lives. We thank you that you've given us Jesus' life too. In his name we pray.